Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. My guest today is Matthew Iglesias, and he's here to make the case that America can become a revived superpower if we take steps to rapidly increase our population. Matt is the co-founder and senior correspondent of Vox, as well as the host of Vox's The Weeds podcast. He's also the author of the newly released One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, as it happens, uh, I, 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 I don't know if I saw that you had this book coming out or if I had a, a, a psychic flash about this topic. But in November of last year, I tweeted, a billion Americans by the year 2100. Seems like a good goal. Um, and then uh, and then I got some responses to that. Uh, a lot of negative responses <laughs> to that general proposition. Uh, but uh, one response really st- stood out. Uh, one response to the idea of a, of a billion Americans came from uh, Robert Atkinson, who is a, a DC kind of innovation tech policy guy, good guy, he's been on the podcast. And when I, when I tweeted that, he said, well, 300 million is a better goal. And I, I said, well, why? That, that's fewer than today. And here is his response to the idea of a billion Americans. Uh, country is too crowded as it is, but clearly if we got to a billion, the quality of life for most Americans would go down. Traffic congestion, lack of access to open spaces, smaller houses, et cetera. What makes America great is that we have low population density. Now that's from Robert Atkinson, kind of a, um, you know, a, a kind of a, a mainstream uh, kind of policy person here. But then that, that some similar ideas actually came, uh, uh, were in a, uh, a Washington Post op-ed by Michael Anton, who is perhaps most uh, well-known or notorious for the uh, Flight 93 uh, essay, where we have to, you know, which is kind of this pro-Trump essay. And this is what he wrote in the Washington Post. Uh, why do we need more people? For the extra con- traffic congestion? More crowded classrooms? Longer emergency room and transportation security administration lines? Higher greenhouse gas emissions? We know that more immigration benefits big business and the Democratic Party. Now, the caveat here is I, I, this book isn't just about emig- immigration. Sure. So these are some arguments. Uh, arguments. Um, why have you not found these arguments compelling? I mean, I think it's telling how prominently traffic jams feature in these concerns. Uh, they really do. So some of this stuff, you know, some complaints that people raise about this agenda, I think are just wrong. The traffic jams is real, right? Obviously, if you had more people in the United States, traffic congestion would be a concern and we would have to do something about it. And the thing I ask in the book, right? I mean, <clears throat> President Trump, you know, whose ideas I'm disaligned with in many ways, but he he gave in, in his convention speech, he talked about uh, Americans going to the moon. He talked about pioneers in covered wagons settling the plains. And I was watching that speech and I was like, this is really funny because I, I make these exact reference points. These are like, I guess, the standard national greatness litany. And the idea that a country that once upon a time sent people in covered wagons across the Rocky Mountains, that people sailed um, 
you know, all the way around South America uh, so they could get in on the California gold rush uh, that they, you know, we bought Alaska. We, we defeated the Nazis. Uh, we sent a man to the moon, but we are going to step away from a great future because we're worried about traffic jams. Like, really? Um, we know how to solve traffic jams, right? Uh, we know about congestion pricing. We know about building highways. We know about bus lanes. We know about subways. Like, yes, like there are things you would have to do to have a billion Americans. Uh, but the idea that you couldn't have them is, is crazy because of traffic jams. Then some of these other objections are laughable, right? So, so Anton talks about, well, our, our, our schools would be more crowded if we had triple the people. No, like we would build more schools, right? Um, so you look at Canada, right? Canada has one-tenth of our population. Does that mean that their student-to-teacher ratio is one-tenth of ours? Like, of course not. They have fewer students than we have, and they also have fewer teachers. So if we had more people, you know, I talk about uh, increasing support for family. People have larger uh, larger families. We would have more immigrants. Um, yeah, like, we would hire more teachers. We would build more school buildings. This is not uh, rocket science. We, at one point, there was, you know, 30 million Americans. Now we have 300 million. Does that mean our schools got overcrowded? Like, it's ridiculous. We built whole new cities. Uh, we built the interstate highway system. Uh, we can we can handle this kind of stuff. I, I was surprised actually to hear uh, Robert Atkinson, who I think of as a as a forward. Well, he, he's a serious person. Well, not just a serious person. I mean, there's a lot of serious people, but you know, one axis of political disagreement in the United States is you know left right. Uh, liberals, conservatives, now we have, who knows, socialists, so all the kind of stuff out there. But also some people have a kind of a, a mental orientation toward uh, dynamism and the future and others toward the past and, and conservatism. And, and this is a book, and, you know, and I think you, and I know this show and I know your project, and I, I'm sure we have uh, many disagreements, but I think are both sort of forward-looking um, dynamism oriented people and you know i'm really in this book i mean i'm against this kind of eco pessimism on the left and this kind of uh nostalgia politics and cultural pessimism on the right and i, I was surprised to to hear him uh take that kind of view because you know it, Look, I, I like nature, and we we can preserve nature as we as we triple the population. I have whole arguments about this, statistics, things like that. But it's not empty space that makes the United States a great country. Like that's that's nutty. It's the people who live here and the things that we do. Now you you avoided Anton's longer uh, TSA line, so I'm assuming that is a, that is an element of the argument that uh, that defeats you. So we're so we're just going to move on because I, sure, I don't yeah. want to embarrass the, you here. That's a very powerful. The, the TSA line is too small. What could we yeah. possibly do? I don't know. Um, you know, build another airport. Right. Perhaps more compelling to many people uh, is the idea that one reason we need to be much bigger is that we have a rising geopolitical rival who is much bigger. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, the sort of the China aspect of your argument, why you why you find that compelling. Yeah, so you know, China is not. I think look, key argument of the book is that the billion Americans, if done in a smart, reasonable way, is going to make this a richer country. It's going to make it a happier country. Uh, you know, higher living standards, things like that. I would not say like we need to immiserate ourselves 
themselves to tackle the Chinese. That being said, international competition has traditionally been a focusing point for the United States, right? We have aspired to be a shining city on a hill. We've been the arsenal of democracy. Uh, the, the space program, you know, was in part about Cold War competition. Uh, China is a country that already they have achieved, you know, roughly the per capita GDP of like Mexico or Bulgaria. And those are, you know, solidly middle income countries that we wish well and we don't normally worry about, well, what's Mexico going to say, right? What are the Bulgarians going to do? Because uh, these are middle income countries. But China at China's scale, while being still a relatively poor country, is a huge force on the international stage. And they are trying to continue to grow wealthier. And I don't think we really can or should stop them from trying to you know, continue to aspire to economic growth. But we should try to stop them from being the number one power in the world, whether that's in hard military terms or even just economic terms, cultural terms. Because um, all these things yeah. are connected. And you know, the value system of the People's Republic leadership is, it's like, it's really bad. Uh, we really don't want them to shape the terms of everything that happens here. And I think nobody in American politics embraces that idea. No one is saying, well, we're going to have to learn to be the number two country. Uh, but so then we have to do something about it. Uh, two, uh, I guess, related questions. One, one billion by when? And should readers really interpret this book as you saying you want a billion Americans <laughs> by any date? Or is this just really more of an interesting thought experiment to argue for more Americans, uh, you know, uh, that we should be bigger, somewhat bigger, but a billion is just a beautifully round <laughs> number. It makes for a fantastic book title. I find it very compelling, obviously. Uh, so, is it, so one by when, and do you really mean it? Sure, look. If we settled on 850 billion, uh, 850 failure. million Americans, failure. that would be a failure. That would be a failure. <laughs> it, it, right. Look, it would be okay. Look, if you read these arguments, these are arguments. This is a case for more, right? Uh, what's one billion? It's a round number. It makes a nice title. Uh, one billion by twenty one hundred is two nice round numbers together. Uh, by coincidence, that would involve we would need the population growth rate of Canada uh, sustained for eighty years to get there. That sounds totally reasonable to me. I mean, I've been to Canada. Uh, you may know Canadians. Listeners may be familiar with it. It's a it's a fine country. They're they're doing well for themselves. Um, you know, uh, it's also one billion Americans would get us the population density of France. It would get us one half the population density of Germany. Those are also countries that people I think are aware of. Um, they know that they have they're a high them. standard of living in France and Germany. That it is not, you know, say what you will about France. It's not some kind of like dystopian hell of overcrowding. Um, whatever problems people may have with it. It's not that. They've got nice vineyards. Uh, there's some woods, a beautiful coastline. Everybody likes Paris. Uh, so, you know, that's why a billion. Like, yes, it's a little bit of a vague aspiration, but it's an idea that I think we can anchor ourselves on. Uh, you need to pick goals in life, and I think it's a good one. Of course, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, I guess, you know, environmentalists, you want to call them eco-pessimists, you want to give them that, that, that label. But a lot of environmentalists say, this is a grotesque idea, whether 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 it's a hundred, uh, whether it's one billion or five hundred million Americans, we need to have less people on this earth, not be not not be making clever cases 
for more people, particularly not more, you know, high consuming, troublemaking Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look, the reason I say eco-pessimists rather than environmentalists is to me, look, if you're an environmentalist, it means you're somebody who takes environmental problems seriously. You are aware of the literature on the problems of air pollution. You're not saying climate change is like made up by the Chinese. Um, I'm 100% on board with that. I think we need to take that stuff seriously. I think we need to, you know, invest money in green electricity, electrification of our vehicle fleet. But I think if you are smart about environmental problems, you recognize that fundamentally, particularly on on the carbon issue, um, to resolve climate change, you either need some kind of cataclysmic fall in living standards that's just not going to happen, or else you need new technologies, you need a new technological paradigm. That doesn't mean just do nothing and say technology is going to solve it, because we have to um, use technologies that we've already developed, and we have to spend meaningful money on developing new things. But like, people are not going to never fly on airplanes again. Uh, People in the developing world, people in India and Vietnam, are not going to be content to not have electricity in their houses. So to me, that means the biggest way the United States can contribute to this problem is one, by deploying renewable energy, deploying electrification of things that can be electrified, and two, by pouring money into research and development of, you know, the kinds of technologies to take on the challenges that are not solved. There's really big problems with cement, with steel, with air travel, with agriculture, that we're only beginning to understand how we can possibly solve them. Uh, To my way of thinking, taking those problems seriously means investing in trying to solve them, not telling ourselves, well, we're just going to whittle the population down, or somehow everybody's going to go like live in a shack in a hillside there. Uh, But it is a fundamental difference in worldview. I mean, there are some people who are very driven by a sort of pastoralist notion that we can just sort of conserve our way. Uh, A billion Americans is not about that. This is about a bigger, richer, more dynamic society. One way we would get more Americans, even a billion Americans, one way is through uh, immigration. And and you make uh, in the book, you make the case that people, you know, worry too much about the sort of the, the impact on, on, on wages. You do a nice sort of, you know, you, you do some you know literature review. Uh, but do you think fundamentally that the problems Americans have with more um, immigration is an economic argument that can be then they can be persuaded with studies or is it really you think a deeper cultural thing? Uh, that they they're just they're just worried about sort of the the cultural racial ethnic makeup of America and whatever whether it's you know whatever the need we have for low skill workers or whether you're talking about bringing in you know geniuses who are gonna you know start the next unicorn they don't care it's about culture and th- and that's that's sort of the, the trickier issue to deal with if you want a lot if you want to keep uh, immigrants coming into this country. I mean, I think that's right. I think concerns are largely cultural and no in nature. Part of this, though, is you know, look, you need to have um, people in positions of authority behaving responsibly. I think it's totally fair to debate the contours of immigration policy, uh, but like President Trump has clearly made a career out of a certain amount of demagoguery on this subject, uh, sort of a number of his friends at at Fox News. And and that's a problem. It's just hard to succeed as a country when people in authority behave irresponsibly. But second, I think we should try to address 
people's cultural concerns in a real way. I think a big thing on the left is to look at people who have concerns about anything. And then if you can plausibly say, okay, well, the nature of that concern is racist, uh, which I think, you know, is the case for a lot of anti-immigration sentiment, will you then say, well, we've dismissed it. I've proven that these are bad people. These are the racists. So we're going to ignore them. You can't do politics like that. People exist, right? Uh, white working class people in the Midwest exist. They have opinions. Uh, they're angry about pressing one for English. I don't know. I, I love immigrants. I grew up in New York. You know, I live in a diverse neighborhood. It's all good for me. Uh, but we have to deal with the actually existing American population and their concerns. I think there is good evidence that if you bias the immigrant flow more to skilled people, that you get less opposition to immigrants. I think we could bias the immigrant flow more to people who speak English. English, uh, which addresses one set of concerns. Beyond that, I think we should be flexible. We should be trying to understand what immigrants are people okay with, right? Could we have a sort of stronger freedom of movement with Canada? Are people really worried about Canadians moving here and changing the culture? We're going to be too polite. Uh, how about English people? How about the Irish? You know, let, let, let's bring them in. How about Middle Eastern Christians, who I think seem sympathetic to a lot of conservative-minded people in the United States? You know, they can they can relate to the the plight of Copts and Palestinian Christians, Syrian Christians. Maybe we could maybe we could bring them in. You know, there, there's different kinds of dimensions uh, that you could work on, and I think it's a Politics is hard, right? Like, uh, I'm a big um, fan of, of Max Weber, and, you know, he he talks about politics as a vocation. And it is distinct from policy analysis or writing hot takes or trying to sell books or going on podcasts. Uh, but what I want is for politicians to actually work on this problem, right? Rather than to just kind of say, okay, well, we're stuck with this visa cap, and all we can do is argue about how to reallocate it. Like, we should make that visa cap higher, and we should have real bargaining with each other and bargaining with the public on what that higher visa cap should look like. Because I believe fundamentally that the concrete material impact of immigration is so positive that we owe it to ourselves to find a way to unlock that potential. Uh, the other mechanism uh, is getting people to have more kids or at least ha have more babies uh, that people say they want a lot more kids than what they currently have, so we should so we should you know help the incentive there. Uh, mm -hmm. We you know, whatever their problems are, we we should we should meet those problems. Do you think there's really strong evidence that we can really change in a significant way how many kids people have? I think there's pretty good evidence that you know at at the margin financial incentives do matter. Um, Obviously, there is a large cultural element, right? So, you know, Western European countries do more to support families, but people have smaller families than in the United States. And that's pretty obviously because the United States is more religious uh, than, than, than Europe, right? So I think the material incentives do make a difference, right? You compare Northern European countries to Southern European countries, and you see that the greater family support is making a difference there. I, I quote some of, uh, I think, Lyman Stone's review of the literature on this, um, upfront cash payments can make a real difference, but culture matters too. Uh, if that's not my uh, metier exactly as a journalist, but I, one thing I do say in the book is that like, I think we need to try to get less 
uh, judgy about parents. So much of the current culture of parenting in the media is about like the 90 million ways you're doing it wrong, different ways to stress yourself out. And that, you know, we want to try to both be more supportive of parents in a material sense, but also in a social and psychological sense and say, look, like this is important. Like it's hard, but like you're doing it and it's good. And that it's the people who are just not having uh, any children are not contributing in the same way to like the, the long-term future of the universe. Last, I hope that if birth rates increase even marginally, that that itself changes culture, right? That people who have children spend more time doing things like going to church or talking to other people who have children. Uh, they're more involved with family. When people have bigger families, that's more support for child rearing uh, in the end. Um, you know, I get into some real right-winger territory. You probably know more people who have smart ideas about this than I do. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that that's important. Fundamentally, it there's an interplay between the material and social factors. One of your ideas is one which uh, I've heard many versions of or, uh, on the right for many years, which is the idea that one way to help struggling cities uh, is to is, is to bring in immigrants where, you know, we, we're going to create uh, a Hong Kong on the Potomac. We're going to create a Hong Kong on Lake Erie. We're going to bring in mm -hmm. other places to, you know, Detroit and other sort of uh, Rust, Belt, Rust Belt cities. Uh, one issue I have with that is the idea we're bringing immigrants to these cities. Uh, what well, if they don't want to stay in these cities? Mm -hmm. how, how, have you thought? Have you thought about that? And they're they're in Detroit. They don't want to be in Detroit. Do we drag them back to Detroit when they want to go? Are we locking people in these in these regions? Uh, you know, so I, I picked up an idea that uh, Adam Ozemek and um, Adam Lettieri developed. And, you know, so their idea was, one, this is about expanding the pool of visas, right? So one way to do that is to say, okay, well, we should let particular places sponsor additional people. Um, so how do you make that work, right? Are we going to have like border checkpoints on the outskirts of Akron? And, you know, there's a lot of problems with that, right? Pe people don't want internal border controls. Um but if you say to someone, you know, we condition all kinds of visas. Right now we do something that I think is not great, which is, you know, if somebody gets an H-1B visa, they need to sort of stay with a particular employer. So I think a better way of thinking about it would be to say, look, okay, you get this visa. Um, it's a visa sponsored by Detroit or by the state of Michigan or, or what have you. The terms of the visa are, it lasts for five years and, you know, you got to be living in this place. So you do it. You take your five years. And then if you comply with the terms, you can get a more flexible visa. If not, you know, you're gone. But we don't need to like police you. The, the incentive is that you want to get that permanent residency card. Will people leave after five years? I think a lot of them will. At the same time, you know, once you live someplace for five years, you tend to put down roots in the community, things like that. A lot of people just continue to live places where they moved originally for completely separate reasons, uh, you know, because they've got a house or they've got a spouse or they have friends, they like it. You'll get ethnic niche communities. So I don't think it works perfectly, right? We're not going to turn um, somehow Cleveland into like, 
just a like a refugee camp, but also we wouldn't want that, right? We we want to have a free society. Uh, but I do think it is useful to sort of get people in, in part because I think that for a lot of these cities, uh, once you break the cycle of population decline, that itself makes them a much more attractive place to live in. I think that for a lot of cold weather sort of old industrial cities, the one of the biggest problems they have right now is simply the fact that decline is a cycle. And we need to find ways to break that cycle. I feel like I have a, pr- a pretty good idea uh, how folks on the right think about some of these issues, how they think about immigration. I mm-hmm. really feel like I don't have a very good idea at this point, <laughs> what people on the left think about a lot, because I feel like m- much of what I hear seems to be a reaction to President Trump. If President Trump's against trade, well, now Democrats are the free trade party. Uh, so, so it's almost, it's completely, I think, reactive. What do you really think that folks <laughs> on the left think about ideas such as, uh, you know, uh, bringing a lot more immigrants and uh, encouraging people to have kids? What, mm-hmm. How will these ideas go? Like, where is that part? Where is the left sort of directionally and what are they going to make of this? You know, it's a mixed bag, right? I mean, I think like any interesting book, it sort of cuts at the seams of our current political debate. I think a lot of people on the left um, have reacted to some of the cruelty that they've seen from the Trump administration toward immigrants, and they they feel in their heart that that is wrong. Uh, then the question that I want to bring them to is, look, can we think in a smart way about this, right? Because you know, uh, Republicans will caricature Democrats and say, oh, they become the open borders party. But that's not true. What they have become is the party of people who are skeptical about tough immigration enforcement, which is fine. I mean, it's good to not want to see people mistreated. But fundamentally, like, you know, it's a country. The country has laws. Whatever the laws are, people are going to want to see the laws enforced. And what we need to ask ourselves is like, well, okay, what actually do we think those laws should be, right? And there is growing support for increased immigration on the left, uh, which is great. That's part of, I mean, and in the country as a whole, that's part of the standard thermostatic dynamic we have. But I want to harness that openness in a constructive direction. I think the biggest problem that people on the left have with this book, frankly, is just it's, um, it is on patriotic themes. I have red, white, and blue on the cover. There's a lot of stars uh, I say something about na- I say something stars. about national greatness, um, <laughs> and of course, like Democrats know, right? I mean, you go to a Joe Biden event, and like he's got these flags up. Like people understand that the language of patriotism is the language of America, but it's not. Um, it's become alien to progressive intellectuals, and I think that's a conceptual dead end. I mean, just like taking the flags down from the Biden events would be a dead end. Well, if you, if you, if you don't think, if you, if you question, if you question whether America, and I'm not saying most people, most Democrats think this, but certainly some some people think this, uh, that America has not been a force for good, maybe mm-hmm. for a long time, maybe ever. Why the heck would you want more of us? No, and I, I. I I agree with that. I mean, look, this book um, goes into excruciating detail about some of these questions about traffic jams and does not (laughs) present a detailed defense of the notion that uh, American hegemony is preferable to Chinese hegemony. I I think that it is. I provide some arguments to that effect. But to me, like, it is so obvious that, like, 
this is the way real politics is conducted. Uh, everybody knows that, right? And this is a, but it is a real issue among left-wing intellectuals. A lot of people um, want to get cute. Uh, and I don't, I don't think it makes sense. You know, I read something like um, 1619 Project, make some controversial remarks mm. about something well-known. There was a lot of good essays in that project. Um, they raised a lot of good points about American history. It's great. It's like, it's, it's good for people to talk about these things. That said, fundamentally, the idea that we are going to replace like patriotic narratives about America with these kind of pessimistic ones, like that doesn't make sense to me. Like politics, including the politics of racial justice, have never been pursued in those terms successfully, right? Uh, Richard Rorty has a book called Achieving Our Country, uh, which I think is a great, meaningful work that left-wing people, like conservatives don't need to hear this, but but left-wing people do. It's like, you you look at our history, you look at what has happened, the good and the bad, and you build on the good, right? You talk about the positive themes, the positive examples, and you press people to live up to the best in America. And I just think that's the way you get things done. My guest today has been American patriot and optimist, Matthew Iglesias. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.